Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Welcome back to the final College Football Fix episode of the 2021 season, and your national champion is Georgia. The Bulldogs beat Alabama 33-18 on Monday, and here to talk about it, I'm Dan Wolken from USA Today Sports, Paul Meyerberg. I got to tell you, it's always like, there's like a tired feeling the day after the national championship game, and we weren't there in person, um, just combination of Omicron and a lot of different factors, no in-person access for the media. And so for myself, just kind of decided to skip it this year. But I'm still just as tired as I would have been had I been in the press box last night. I don't know what what it's like. It's like, it's like a body clock thing or something. Yeah, it must be. Because I feel like a million bucks, man. Um that game was over at like what eleven fifty, ish. Yeah, it's done by yeah. one o'clock, one thirty. Got seven hours plus of sleep last night. I feel great. It's like I didn't get your normal night of sleep. Yeah. Well, maybe it was because uh, the garbage man came through my neighborhood at seven a.m. beeping and so um, making all kinds you, of noise. Have you? Uh, what is outside like? People don't know you live in Atlanta. What is the scene like? Have you gone out? Is it? Are there people high fiving in the streets? Is it a Georgia town? I mean, it is a Georgia town. Yeah, well, it is, but it's funny because like Atlanta's not really like that in in some ways. I mean, it wasn't even like that after the Braves won the World Series. Like Atlanta's a city that uh, it's it's obviously so big and so spread out. It's also just got a lot of transplants and people who aren't from here, including myself. So, yeah, you'll see people. I I don't know. I was in um, – where was I? Oh, I was out getting lunch, uh, just grabbing – picking something up earlier today. And, uh, you know, I saw a guy in a Georgia hat. But, like, you might see that anyway. So it's it's not like people were, like, ebullient and high-fiving. Maybe that's how it is in Athens. I didn't go over to Athens. Um, but – I know that the Georgia people who are friends of mine are, are very happy and very, I don't know if relieved is the right word, but it had just become such a thing. They hadn't won it since 1980. You know, all these other SEC programs had won it. Clemson had won it. Georgia Tech had won it. They had not. And so to finally break through, to do it against Saban, Kirby finally breaking that curse for uh, four straight losses to Saban. It just sort of felt like, I think, for, for Georgia fans, the – the even though like you and I can, can look at the whole picture of college football and say this was inevitable, this was going to happen at some point, Georgia was too good of a program and recruiting too well not to win a national championship, like until you actually do it, I, I think people – there's the psychosis, you know, the – 
syndrome that that fans have that they just sort of wonder if it'll ever happen. Yeah, definitely a, a, a sense of relief. I don't think that's too strong a word for for fans and for the program. And yeah, to do it against Alabama makes it even sweeter to me. Um, if I'm Georgia, if I'm Kirby Smart, um, we're going to talk a lot about this game. I don't know how much we're going to talk about Alabama. Um, I guess we'll talk a little bit about 2022. But one thing that I was amazed by for Alabama was uh, the way Nick Saban acted after the game. Um, he's a guy who handles winning and losing like surprisingly well. He handles, he's always handled losing surprisingly well for a guy who doesn't do it very often. But the feel for me coming out of that game for Alabama was Saban like was good. He was like, wow, we got almost like we got to this point with this team and lost our two dudes on the outside and gave Georgia a pretty good game. They kicked our ass in the fourth quarter, but we played pretty well. Um, Pretty amazed by that, you know, the way that he kind of accepted it and felt almost not celebratory, but satisfied with it. Yeah, and there was a moment in the postgame press conference, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it by now, where he's got, uh, you know, Bryce Young to his right and Will Anderson to his left, and he basically just says, and I'm just sort of paraphrasing here, hey, I want to say something, you know, these two guys, this loss and this one game doesn't define them. And, you know, they're disappointed, of course, but they, you know, they gave everything they had to give us a chance to win this game. And obviously there's things they wish they they could do over and they'll regret not winning this national championship, but they should be really proud of the effort they put in and all that stuff. And it was a nice moment. I thought it was a nice moment in the postgame handshake, um, Saban, you know, kind of comes over to Kirby with a big smile and says, yeah, you kicked our ass in the fourth quarter. And all that stuff is good. Saban, very gracious uh, in wins and losses. You know, and I think, actually, I think you find sometimes a lot of the the greats, especially as they get older, are, are like that. I mean, Mike Krzyzewski is more like that now than maybe he was as a, as a younger man. I think Saban's more like that now. And, like, the guy's not – stupid the same stuff we were talking about all season long about Alabama and how they just didn't have it you know they just didn't have the the weaponry to to win a national title and here they were in the fourth quarter leading this game 18 to 13 with a chance you know get it get a couple stops they're going to win the championship now obviously they didn't but that's a pretty good year with a team that was pretty limited. And like you mentioned, losing John Mechie in the SEC championship game, losing Jamison Williams very early in the national championship game. You know, you saw they have the ball down eight with a couple minutes to go. They're trying to drive to tie the game. And, you know, not to blame on individual guys, but like there were plays to be made for those receivers and they just didn't, do it. They couldn't do it. And I don't think you like get mad about that or blame them. They had not really played that role all season long and you're asking them to do it in the championship game. It's not fair to expect that. So yeah, I mean, we can close the loop on Alabama here and just say great season. They're going to bring a lot of these dudes back next year. They're probably going to be preseason number one and they should be. And yeah, like if you think this is, if you think this is the last shot, Nick Saban has to win another national title. Um, I mean, what, what's going to happen? Like, why would that be the case? Where's he going? 
he's not going anywhere. Look, I, I think uh, we should talk a lot more about Georgia than Alabama, but I do think Alabama had chances to win this game. Um, obviously, they did. And there are moments that if they go their way, they might end up winning this game remarkably, despite being depleted at playing those kids on the outside who really had no business playing in that game at this point in their careers and played like it with drops, uh, misplays, misroutes, all that stuff. But if they hit that field goal like it's blocked, it's a different game. If they convert that throw on third and goal where Young's rolling to his right, and I think he got a little bit pressured, had to throw it a little bit earlier, a little bit late. I didn't understand what Herb Street was really his, anal- his analysis of that play. Uh, if that's a touchdown, it's a different game. So Alabama, I mean, remarkably, given their personnel, they could have really won this game. Um, and that would have been, to me, more shocking than beating Georgia in early December, quite honestly, if they had ended up winning this game. Because Georgia is the better team in terms of depth and experience. Um, they were able to weather their losses. Um, Alabama was not quite able to weather theirs. Um, and when it came down to it, um, Georgia, the more well-rounded team, and also on Monday night, Amazingly, got better quarterback play. And Stetson Bennett really deserves a lot of credit for the way that he shut the door on his season. Five touchdowns, no picks in these last two games. Um, we've said all year, like, hey, he needs to silence his doubters. I mean, couldn't have written a better script for a kid to end it um, at Georgia. He could come back, but I think this is it for him to, to be a local walk-on who left, came back, and then took that job. I think that's a great story. Yeah, I think we had this game pegged right all along, to be honest with you, I think that when you when you consider the way the SEC championship game played out, and I mean, it, it was really the main talking point was that Georgia just got no pressure on Bryce Young. He was able to stand back in the pocket, kind of pick them apart, especially in that second quarter. And once Georgia kind of got behind, they really or once they, you know, it was a couple scores, like they just weren't built to come back. And I think the key in this one, there were two things. One was that that they did get pressure on Bryce Young. I mean, it was immediate from the from literally the the outset, the first Alabama possession. It was it was very clear that that Georgia was not going to let that happen again, and they were giving him different looks and 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 trying to get him on the ground. And and you saw, you know, the the incomplete pass that was initially ruled a fumble overturned on replay. It would have been a touchdown for Georgia and it got taken off the board. And I'm sure at the, at the moment in that moment, it was disappointing for Georgia to not get an early turnover, you know, scoop and score touchdown to really establish uh, the tone of that game. But I looked at it as, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate for them that, that replay overturned it. I think replay got the call, right? But that was a lot more havoc and pressure they were able to cause on that play than they did the whole SEC championship game. So to me, that was actually a very good omen for, for Georgia. And, you know, I thought for the first two and a half quarters, despite the fact they were getting outplayed in some ways, I actually, I mean, I think they were, I, th- I thought Georgia got outplayed, you know, by a pretty decent margin. They were uh, in the yardage. I was kind of tracking it the whole time. Alabama had outgained them by about a hundred yards at that point. And yet they were only down nine to six. They were right in it. And it just felt like as the game wore on, Georgia got stronger. They committed to running the football finally, you know, and, and they, they got more touches for, um, 
for for those guys and their offensive line, which did not play great early in the game, I thought really just got stronger and stronger. And that was the difference that allowed them to score on their last two offensive possessions. Yeah, they wore them down remarkably. I don't know the last time uh, from a physical perspective. And I say, I don't know the last time. I can't think of a time, and maybe I'm wrong, from a physical perspective that Alabama had been worn down by like that. Because um, when they lost to Clemson a few years back, that was a dominant performance. But at no point in that game, to me, did I look at that and say, wow, Alabama's being physically manhandled. I thought they lost mentally that game. They gambled on that fake kick. It backfired. Floodgates open. Ball game. But they got physically pushed around by Georgia. And Georgia had done that to a whole lot of teams this year. They'd done it to everyone except for Alabama the first time. So that was a, a striking uh, um, display by Georgia against the Crimson Tide, honestly, to have them really get pushed around like that. Um, one thing I thought interesting about the nature of the win for Georgia um, is not just that they physically pushed them around. I, I just It felt to me like very similar, as I wrote last night, to a lot of those early Alabama teams, that recipe. I mean, not just winning in the fourth quarter, but doing it with kind of a pedestrian or uninventive offense, um, playing a field position game, um, getting, uh, you know, winning it on defense. Just felt very familiar to 2009, 2011, 2012 Alabama, uh, which obviously makes a whole lot of sense. But by doing so, I think it makes it even more impressive because, like I said, no one had really done that to Alabama in ages, if at all, since early Saban years. So um, just a remarkable performance for Georgia. Um, one thing I wanted to add in the beginning, and, and this is like kind of a leap to uh, a jarring leap to a different topic, but I wonder if you had any thoughts on the officiating last night. I don't think it ended up deciding the game, but that to me there were a couple moments on Monday night where I was like, we could have done a little bit cleaner, buttoned this up a little bit. I thought there were a couple moments that were not great for officiating. Yeah, I didn't think it was great. You know, I thought, um, you know, as always in these types of games and you watch the fan reaction on Twitter, there's a lot of talk about who's holding and holding that's not getting called and whether that favors one team or the other. And look, there was certainly plenty of holding going on on the offensive line, I think, on both sides. Georgia committed a lot of penalties, you know, early in the game. Um, What did they have, like eight first-half penalties, something like that? Mm -hmm. That really sort of hurt them and and it's why they couldn't really sustain drives um i mean was there something like specific in the officiating that, that no, you I just had an that issue it was a with sloppily officiated officiated game i mean you mentioned the, it wasn't the, it wasn't the best yeah i mean you mentioned the um the touchdown call back early i mean indisputable video evidence of that i'm just not sure yeah you know it didn't have an impact like i said i just feel like we get to this stage you got the two best teams in the country let's get the best officials on there Disconcerting well, signals uh, from from yeah that was I mean, come on <laughs> that was interesting that, so, that was that was an interesting call look like we want the best game on the best stage with the best players the best coaches let's, let's get the best referees as well well whenever the referee crew is announced for the national championship game no matter what conference it's from you always get fans of that conference saying you know oh I'm sorry <laughs> you know and I, this time it was ACC right it was the right. ACC crew who, who did the championship game um but like tell me what fan base thinks their conference has good officials I, it doesn't exist um so i'm big 12 has done some of these championship games before because the big 12 has never had a team in the national championship <laughs> uh 
um, in the playoff format. Uh, they seem to do an okay job. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it, it didn't decide the game. Now, look, we very well could have had a situation with the Stetson Bennett fumble in the fourth quarter with a very controversial call going in favor of Alabama. I, I, I will tell you, I saw the replay of that 15, 20 times, and I still don't really know if, if he fumbled or not. I mean, I th- you can look at it and say the ball is coming out a fraction of a second before his hand moves forward, but it's very clear to me he's he's trying to throw the ball forward. I, I don't – you know what I mean? Like, I didn't love that call, to be honest. Yeah, that was that was shaky to me. And, look, I think it was going to agree with the call on the field just because of that video evidence. Um. If that had ended up being the difference, I think there would be a there'd be a huge story today. That play, it didn't. Like I said, officiating yeah. didn't decide the game. Just a little bit weird. Um, I think one thing going forward, Dan, you wrote about it last night, and I do think it's going to be we're doing early top twenty fives today, talking about twenty twenty two, where Georgia ranks, where Alabama ranks. Um, this takes this rivalry, and it is a rivalry, um, even if it's not one of those historic SEC ones. Um, this takes the rivalry in a different direction, doesn't it? I mean, now that Georgia's, I wouldn't say even the score, but got on the board, where does this take this? these two programs that obviously rule the SEC and all of college football? What direction does it take it going forward? Yeah, it's super interesting. And I think to get into that topic, I'd like to just take a quick step back to 2015 when Georgia decided to fire Mark Richt. And... You know, it, it, Rick had been there for 15 years. It's a, it's a really long run in modern college football, and he had done well. Like, you look through Mark Rick's career record, uh, he had flirted with the national title a couple times. Obviously, 2012 is, is the one where, honestly, Georgia should have won the SEC championship game. They should have won the national title. They, 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 play, they, they played an incredible game in the SEC championship and just, just came up, you know, that much short. Um, and maybe if he wins that title, everything's different and the entire era is, is looked at in a different light. But I do think with, with the benefit of, of hindsight, like, man, Georgia underachieved as a program for a long time, Mm -hmm. a really long time. And why did they underachieve? I think a lot of it was just because the school had been, so kind of arrogant about the way in which programs win that they just sort of figured they could half-ass it and be be really good, you know, win a, win a national title every now and then. If But they never did. We go back to the end of the Mark Richt era, and I'm not even making this up. When it rained and they couldn't practice outside on their practice field – they would have to like get on a bus and drive down to the Atlanta Falcons facility in Flowery Branch mm. to train there if, if it was available. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that for an SEC program? One that's that's supposed to be one of the you know the the top programs in college football. They didn't have an indoor facility. They had sort of like this, you know, this this very small sort of astroturfed indoor thing where they could you know, do a little bit of a walkthrough or something like that, but you could never actually like run, you know, f- full field plays on it. Um, 
you know, they didn't have the the football operations building that everybody has. I mean, basically they were they were 15, 20 years behind in facilities, in support staff. I mean, mm-hmm. do you remember at the end of the Mark Richt era, they brought in Jeremy Pruitt as defensive coordinator right. to try to sabinize the program. Mm-hmm. And it was a disaster because that's just not who Mark Richt was. And again, I don't I'm not like criticizing him. Really good coach, had a nice run there, did a good job, won a lot of games. But what they needed was somebody like Kirby Smart. And look, when he got hired there, I was skeptical. I think a lot of people were. He's a first-time head coach. You don't know how it's going to go. George is a huge job, a big program. You you were sort of moving in the direction of offensive football, and he's a defensive guy. You know, at the time, you had you had people like Tom Herman who were hot. Um, you know, I thought, you know, hey, you know, is Gary Patterson movable? Like, I, George is one of the best jobs in the country. You could get a guy of that stature. Mm-hmm. But Kirby was an alum, and it got done really fast. They didn't really have a search. It was just basically fire Mark Rick, hire Kirby basically the next day. And he was able to do what really no other Saban assistant has done anywhere else, which is take the blueprint, take the formula, and have a blank check from the administration to speak it into existence. And guess what? Six years later, here they are with a national title. I say all that to say... Everyone for so many years tried to copy what Saban did at Alabama. It didn't work. Why? Because most programs just don't have like the stuff and the resources and the natural, just sort of the inherent things that make Alabama a great program. But Georgia does. And in fact, in some ways, Georgia's got it better than Alabama because better location and slightly better location in terms of proximity to talent, a little less crazy in terms of just like fan base and all the stuff that surrounds the program, a little less pressure. And boy, like now we're seeing what Georgia football could and should be. And I'm not going to sit here and say that they're about to like win the next eight national championships or something like that. But I don't think we've ever seen like a real rival to Alabama in the way that Georgia is a real rival to Alabama now. Yeah, they're a rival in that sense, which is an interesting point, Dan, is that um, they're a true rival because they represent a mirror image um, of Alabama. I mean, they're, they're, they're almost a duplicate. Um, and to me, that worries me if I'm Alabama. Um, and the question moving forward, like you said, Georgia's not going to win the next eight. But could they win two of the next five? and beat Alabama each of those times? Yeah, I think so. And the onus is on Alabama to even this series back and get balanced back and retake the lead. And I don't really know how they do that outside of saying, well, they're going to have a better offense. They're always going to have better quarterback play. Um, They're going to have more skilled talent. Is that it? I don't know. Like, I don't know how Alabama regains the edge in this series just by looking at personnel. I don't, I don't, I don't know what that path is. If it's just to get a five-star QB, I don't I don't know if that's a sustainable model for regaining control of the SEC. Yeah, you, you look at the recruiting rankings. I mean, Georgia gets more five-stars right now than Alabama does. And I don't know if all those guys are going to pan out or whatever. It, certainly, it's a developmental game, and Alabama does a great job 
developing guys. So does so does Georgia. Um, certainly, if they play next year, circumstances will be different, and health and all those things matter. Coaching matters. Uh, Georgia's going to lose some guys off that staff. Dan Lanning, the defensive coordinator, is going to Oregon. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there, there's going to there's always differences year to year. But like when Clemson beat Alabama and they played each other four years in a row in the playoff, it was like two sort of opposite approaches to building great football teams. And, you know, you saw it kind of go back and forth. And with Georgia, it just feels different. It just feels like, you know, the, the, you know, the, the Frankenstein has finally been woken up here. Yeah. And Georgia. Yeah. Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence, you know, yeah, right. Legendary college quarterbacks, two of the best of the last 20 years. Uh, Stetson Bennett. He's not on that list. All no. So there's something more imposing about Georgia. Well, well, I mean, think of it this way. Like, who is Georgia's, like, jump-off-the-page superstar player? On offense? Like, they don't really have one. No. Either side of the ball. There are certain guys on defense I'm, that make individual plays that make you sit out of your chair, obviously. Sure. But their yeah. defense no, is about I, the whole sum of those parts. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, like N'Kobe Dean is going to be an NFL player, and he's going to be really good. But he's not what I would call like a major college football superstar. You know? Yeah. So, so like, it's a different – yeah, it's a different deal with, with this Georgia team. You know, and obviously, like, you know, who knows? George Pickens might have been that guy had he been healthy this year. He made one big play in the in the game last night. But, yeah, it's just a – it's a very different feel – to it, and Saban last year had said he doesn't think that great defense can beat great offense anymore in college football. Oops. And here comes Georgia proving that actually it can, and it did. And boy, it'll be interesting to see how Saban responds to that. Yeah, this is a this is not a a crucial point in Alabama's. Saban era any more than any other time that come off a loss, Clemson, you know, 2010, whatever. But I look at Alabama and I see Georgia to the east, and then I see Texas A&M coming up on my flank with one of the best recruiting classes in the history of recruiting rankings going back almost 25 years. Absolutely. Interesting time for Alabama. Very, very interesting. That's not to mention even that LSU might rebound under Brian Kelly and do something special. All Miss on the rise under Lane Kiffin. Just a really interesting time. Interesting time in the SEC. There, there are very few uh, uh, sleepy Saturdays anymore in that conference. Very, very few, especially in the West. So, oh yeah, I mean, look at look at what Ole Miss dis- did this year. Um, Mississippi State is is inconsistent, but you know that Leach will win a couple games a year. He's not supposed to. Um. It's tough. Yeah, there's not a lot of easy outs. Tennessee, if they can build on what they did this year with with Josh Heupel, they they present a lot of problems and scary uh, scenarios with with the way they can score. Uh, Florida, I I think, will be back on the right path under Billy Napier. I I would expect that to happen. So, yeah, like the SEC is a tough neighborhood. It's it's as tough as there is, and it's 
continues to separate from the rest of college football. And I think last night was a great example of that because the truth is there's just no other, there's just no other teams in the country that could have played a game sort of that physical, that hard hitting, you know, and and not got blown out. Absolutely. I mean, any other, put any other team in the country into that game, uh, one or the other is getting worn down. Like Alabama either, is either putting the hammer down or Georgia's doing what they did to Alabama. The depth up front, the speed up front, the athleticism up, up front is just frightening. And look, three years in a row of SEC championships, right? LSU team, 15-0, and behind the greatest offense ever. Alabama, 2020, 13-0. Three of the top five Heisman Trophy winners. 2021 Georgia, maybe the best defense of the spread era. Three champions built three different ways, three different programs across two divisions. If that doesn't tell the story of the SEC making everyone else look like babies, uh, I don't know what else is. I mean, this is a conference that is so, so dominant, as you wrote on Monday. So dominant. And you can poll 100 different people about how to close the gap at the other 10 conferences, other nine conferences. And you might get 95 different answers because I don't think anyone really knows what and, it's going to take to take down the SEC. And none of them are right. Like, there's really maybe no answer to it. No matter what teams you would have put in this playoff, you're getting the same result. Say Georgia had beaten Alabama in the SEC championship game. Alabama probably doesn't get in. So Georgia would have played Notre Dame in the semifinals, and they would have been a, you know, name the score. Uh, they would have played Michigan in the championship game, or maybe Cincinnati, but probably Michigan. And it would have been what we saw on New Year's Eve. Like, there's just no getting around where we ended up here. Um, which brings us to, I think, the other big story coming out of the championship game, which was the college football playoff management committee meetings, uh, which were – held over the course of, I think, three separate sessions where the conference commissioners got in a room and tried to hash this out and get to the point where they agree on on the parameters of a 12-team playoff so that they could potentially implement this thing in uh, 2024. And unfortunately for college football and I think for, for everybody involved, it sounds like if anything, the talks might have gone backwards mm-hmm. rather than gone forwards. At least that was the rhetoric coming out when you listen to Bob Bowlesby of the Big 12, Greg Sankey of the SEC, a few others. It sounds like a lot of frustration, and it sounds like they just can't get to agreement on what this format is going to be. And it's another example of college football shooting itself in the foot when – they have an opportunity to do something that that they generally agree needs to be done. It's crazy. Yeah, when any time anything gets compared to like Groundhog Day, the movie, like if someone's like, it was like Ground. You ever seen Groundhog Day? Just like Groundhog Day. That means things have gone poorly. Um, and Bolsey made that metaphor like not long after coming out of that room. He looked like when he came out, or sounded like when he came out, um, that he had just been asked to babysit like fourteen six year olds for for three days. Um, he, he sounded very frazzled, but again, like all you got to do is agree to have 12 teams and then either agree that they're automatic qualifiers or not. I understand that's the sticking point, but you would think at this point, you see the dollars at play. 
Uh, you see the fact that everyone agrees that this is a necessary step and you come to some sort of agreement. Um, and like you said, it does not seem right now that things have moved forward. If anything, there's more disagreement than ever before. And that's bad news for college football. We we need to move this postseason forward, uh, 12 teams or whatever the way is going to be. And we're not any closer now than we were in September. And look, uh, big mistake by Bill Hancock in the, in the playoff um, to give these deadlines and timelines earlier this year. Really big mistake. Because I think everyone thought, and I don't remember what time that was. Was it over the summer when he said? It was, it was June. It was June. June. He said in September we'll have a decision. Yeah. Really bad. Um, very rare misstep by a group that plays it very close to the best. I don't know why they did that, but it makes them look like this whole thing has been botched and mismanaged. I, I will tell you, um, last night during the game, as, as I was exchanging texts with some administrators around the country, boy, was there blowback to Bill Hancock, which is not really something you normally hear because Bill Hancock just sort of has this reputation as, um, you know, he's a nice guy. He's a very genial fellow. You know, he'll he'll answer your call or return your call and say absolutely nothing. Um he is paid to – yeah, I mean, let me put it this way. The perception is that he's paid to, you know, to, to run the playoff, which essentially means to be the public messenger for what these conference commissioners want to do. But, like, last night I was getting people texting me like, is this guy stealing money? Like, what is he doing? What is his job? You know, like – and again – I I'm not trying to like personally attack him. I'm just saying I started to hear for the first time fingers be be pointed at him for not being able to land this plane. Um, if he can't do this, what is he there for? Was was sort of the tone of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, and and Bill used to work for the NCAA. He ran the Final Four. That's how he sort of ended up running the BCS and basically saying we. For years, we couldn't have a playoff because of reasons. And then we get to a playoff, and he just sort of, you know, ha, ha, ha. It was true at the time. We changed our mind, you know, whatever the thing is. And now, and then, you know, it was we're not looking at expanding when they clearly were looking at expanding. And, yeah, and and they roll it out in June. Ari Fleischer, the former uh, press secretary for George W. Bush, runs a a – PR company that specializes, I think, in, in sports PR. I think the CFP is probably his biggest client, his most important client. And he does nothing but give them terrible advice. <laughs> I mean, I mean, no, I, listen, I'm, I mean, not to get political here. I, I think enough time has passed that, that everyone, you know, sort of gets the analogy. But, like, what they did in June was the metaphorical mission accomplished – banner behind George W. Bush. And there was no mission accomplished. Mm -hmm. And there was no mission. No, you're exactly right. Really way ahead of the skis. Like, not not good. Not very smart. And it is really surprising to hear blowback against Hancock, but um, the university beloved Bill Hancock by everybody. But I think that speaks to the situation. And it speaks to the frustration. Um, His job, yeah, is to be a bodyguard for the playoff, say things that, you know, are uncontroversial and just kind of maintain the status quo. But he's also a wrangler. 
And there's a reason that Hancock sits in that room with the committee. His job is just kind of to, I wouldn't say maintain the peace, but it is kind of to steer the car across the finish line. Um, and that's, that's right. his job here with the 12 team. Um, yeah, so the frustration is not misdirected. Um, it is his job and has been his job since the start to put into place the best format and to get it to the next stage of its development. And that'll probably be his last step involved with the playoff, I think, to get it to the next contract. Um, and he hasn't done so. It's surprising to hear that said even in a in an on-background or off-the-record conversation, but still uh, very telling that, it, that admins and, and, and conference brokers are, are pointing the finger at Hancock a bit. Yeah, look, at this point, I'm questioning everybody's motives. Now, the Pac-12 put out a statement, a very unusual kind of statement last night, basically lining out all the scenarios they talked about and said, we're not standing in the way of anything. They want... The Pac-12 wanted to make that clear. Uh, they've got a new commissioner, Klyovkov. He's very interesting and different in the way he approaches this stuff than, than some of his colleagues. You know, But then you've got like Greg Sankey going out. I saw a comment from him. Well, maybe if you look at the playoff this year, maybe we should get two AQs for the SEC in the next, in the next playoff deal, which I got to say does not help the discourse, um, especially when everybody's already mad at the SEC for, for taking – Oklahoma and Texas and, and blowing up the sport. You know, is Sankey trying to intentionally tank this thing? I don't know. Like, I, you know, everyone's talking about the ACC. The ACC seems to be firm in that they want eight instead of 12 so that they can force Notre Dame to the table to join the conference in football, which I think you and I know is not going to happen. Like, everyone's got a motive here. And I don't exactly know what they all are, but. Everyone's playing an angle, and it's clear that it's it's not helping matters. What I'm starting to get worried about, just in all candor, is they need to be unanimous to get out of the contract before 2026. They don't need to be unanimous after that. But what I'm sort of wondering is, does this thing collapse to the point where even after 2026, they can't really – get enough consensus on 12 teams or on anything. And we just stick with this four for a long time. Well, what do you think is the deadline to implement a 2026 wholesale change? Like forget 2024. When does that need to be in place just to make 2026 well, the new point? I mean, at least a few years are early, I think. We're looking um, at 24 months from now. Yeah, yeah. That'll go by faster than we think. Yeah. And Sankey, um, Sankey holds the cards, but his whole I'm going to take my ball and go home thing is not helping. Um, not helping at all. And I think that's pissing off a lot of people who can't really do anything about it. It's probably a little feeling of impotence, but that doesn't help, um, especially what he said last night. But he has a point, but still he can't. I think him coming more to the table and being more open to having an open dialogue with his peers, I think would help matters a lot rather than saying things like that in the media, which probably get texted around immediately among those guys. All right. Just a couple of quick things before we, we end this and sign off for the season, which team in the country do you think has the best chance to disrupt a second straight year of Georgia, Alabama playing for the title. Cause you know, one of the two is going to end up in the national championship game next year. It's it, I, I would bet a lot of money that that happens. 
I think the easiest answer is Ohio State. We don't want to be inventive. I think it's obviously Ohio State. Um, got a new defensive coordinator. They're going to do things differently on defense schematically. Obviously, the offense is going to rock and roll. So I think Ohio State is the disruptor for 2022. If we want to be different, I think Texas A&M is brewing. And I think they've got something going. They need much, much better quarterback play. I don't know if Max Johnson from LSU is the guy who's going to carry him to a national championship. Yeah, that's but the, the roster's problem. there. The roster's there talent-wise for them to beat Alabama again, win the West, you know, win the SEC. But it's got to be Ohio State. Hey, unless you think Clemson's going to bounce back. I've seen Clemson. They were number four in the in the early top 25 we did um, just by basically default. Um, but maybe Clemson bounces back and gets there. I don't know if that's the case, but it's obviously a very short list of teams just physically and mentally from a coaching perspective good enough to do it. It's like three or four teams, yeah, so that's, it's not that long a list. I, I kind of want to wait and see on Clemson to get a sense of what it looks like with, with their staff changes. What do you make of the Jim Harbaugh stuff? There's some talk that he might be interested in going back to the NFL. There's obviously NFL searches that are going to be happening this week because the regular season is over. Um, you know, it's hard to know sometimes how, how real it is or how real it will turn out to be. Is he just trying to get a new contract? More like the contract he had before his salary got cut in half. The, is he... Was he more upset about that than he let on publicly? Does he feel like he's gotten to the mountaintop for what he can do at Michigan and it's time to bounce? All those things are in play. With Harbaugh, you never really know because he's such a private and weird dude. Like You're just not going to really get a straight answer from him about what's going on. But um, how real do you think it is, and, and what do you think Michigan would do if, uh, if he does bounce? Yeah, like you said, it's it's impossible to actually know what he's thinking because um, he's an insane person. But my guess on this would be, and this is a very hazardous guess because who knows, my guess would be that one year after being told, hey, if you want to come back, you got to do this, this, and this, and oh, by the way, we're going to take a couple million bucks, he's saying, uh, I want my money. Pay me my money. Yeah, yeah. Um, and which is just simple business. That's my thought on it. Um, he's obviously not going to the Dolphins because I don't think Stephen Ross said it outright. And he might have actually said it outright. I don't remember um, yesterday or whatever day they fired Flores. Um, yeah, but I think he's playing for more money, and he should. He should get paid. If he does leave, I think it's an interesting question about whether Luke Fickle would take that job. Let's just say he becomes available. Would Luke Fickle take the Michigan job? Well, I don't know. Let me say this. I, I mean, if – Far be it for me to tell anyone what to do with their career, okay? But, like, if you can't take the Michigan job because you're an Ohio State guy, I think that's just stupid. Yeah. Like, there may be plenty of reasons why you don't want that job. You don't want to work for Ward Manual or you, you don't think you can win there, whatever it may be. But, like, to not take that job because of the laundry, I think is insanely stupid. Yeah, it would be stupid. Um, it would be pretty dumb. I guess I mean, we'll see it happen. I, I think, you know, some names for that job, honestly, would be the two Matts, Matt Campbell and Matt Rule. Yeah. I mean, Matt Rule, I mean, who knows? Like, it, he's not getting fired, apparently, from Charlotte, but it's not worked out well. He's clearly on the hot seat in the NFL. To me, that's a perfect type of job for Matt Rule. Yeah, I'm going to make a, uh, I'm going to make a prediction today. 
January the 11th, 2022. Two. Uh, I think Matt Rule will be coaching in the Big Ten in 2023. Just to, yeah, I think that's a pretty. I think that's a pretty fair prediction. Yeah, he'll be in the Big Ten. Um, yeah. I, does Michigan have the is so Michigan to you? Let's say Harbaugh does take a job, and I don't think I don't think he's going to. Though the did the Raiders make the playoffs? They did. I think they did. Nor maybe they didn't. What do you think? Do you have a guess? What do I think? Yeah, huh? the Raiders make it. They did. The Raiders did make the playoffs. So I, um, I love this. It's so great. Uh, so if the Raiders, that could be that's an opening, a premier job. Well, the, yeah, a lot of money. No, it's it's. It's a it's a it's a lot of money. He he's familiar with Mark Davis. Um, it's it's a good spot. It's a good situation. So if he takes that job, Dan, let's just say he does in the next fourteen days. Is Michigan a uh, oh boy here we go again job opening? Um, or if they take it, Matt Campbell, that's obviously not going to trigger a whole domino effect. Is that how you see it playing out? It's not going to yeah. rechristen the whole thing over again. No, I mean. Heck, they could just promote Josh Gaddis for all we know. I mean, I don't think that's what they would do. Maybe they would. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it would trigger like five more openings. You might have a little ripple, but I, I think we're basically done except for what happens with that situation. Right. Well, that's good to hear, Dan. I'm ready for that to be done. I'm ready for us to be enter off season mode, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, We'll have to have a conversation uh, about uh, how often we're going to do this podcast in the offseason. I like to keep it going to some degree. Um, I, we've got the Olympics coming up, which I'm involved in, so that's going to complicate things for at least uh, the next next little while. By the way, was there anything that you missed about not being in Indianapolis for the game? I've been to Indianapolis many times. Yeah. Um, it's a place I enjoy going for big events. Um, I, I will say I was slightly jealous when I saw the big carts of shrimp being rolled into the press box, the St. Elmo shrimp cocktail. Right. Uh, it's pretty good shrimp. Pretty good shrimp. Yeah, let me know. Um, I want that to be delivered to me in a four-pack on ice. I do not want those to be placed out at some point in the second quarter onto, onto Formica tables in a press box and left out to cool. Um, you think there were food safety issues? You think St. Elmo's yeah. would allow food safety issues? I feel like there are definite uh, health uh, and safety concerns about leaving plates of shrimp out and just telling a bunch of degenerate fat sports writers, dig in, get in line, put your grubby, disgusting paws right into those shrimp. Forget about the tongs because you know that some of those sickos were not using tongs um, and just pile them onto your plate. And here, use the same spoon to get all your cocktail sauce. I'm sure some of you will put your big thumbs into that as you scoop it up. I'm not a germaphobe. I'm not a. Uh, I'm not someone who necessarily cares about that stuff. But to me, one of the most disgusting things I've seen in a press box, and I've covered some bad football games, but that was one of the most disgusting things I've seen. Just shrimp on plates. If anyone saw it on the internet, on Twitter, gross. Just disgusting. So I definitely did not see. I have more faith. I have more faith in St. Elmo's ability to manage like a party situation. I, I think they've got some experience in in large scale catering. So, so you think I've St. got Elmo's more faith was than like you do? Coming, they were like, "All right, we're going to leave at the end of the first quarter. Uh, drive it over in our refrigerated van, bring it right up the." I don't know. No, how, well, that was a well, free delivery. 
First of all, like it's a hundred, it's like two hundred yards from St. Elmo's to the stadium. It's, it's not that far. It's true. They should have um, left at halftime to get it. Yeah. Um, hey, if you've never had it, that cocktail sauce is uh, is is something unique in the American palate. Yeah, it'll make you. And sweat, look, for sure. I, I don't want to say that it's good because I don't know that it's good. <laughs> like I feel like at home when I make, you know something with a cocktail sauce. I make a very good cocktail sauce at home. I think most people can't. It's, very, it's not that hard to make. It's pretty simple. Um, theirs is different in than what you would normally get. It's, it's very hot. It's uh, very overwhelming. I actually think the high quality of shrimp that they use is what makes the shrimp cocktail, not the sauce. They use, right. they, they source a very high quality shrimp, a very large shrimp. It's, it's impressive, actually. I mean, for Indiana, like they're a landlocked state, they get a good I shrimp know. in there. I know, and every time I go there, if I've been there three or four times and had the shrimp, I'm just thinking, "Hey, little fella, where'd you come from? How far did you travel to get to my plate? How long have you been on ice? Were you on ice? I think they have to be put on ice. I think they have to by law. So who knows anymore um, with deregulation? But um, just eating." Those size shrimp, clearly not coming from anywhere close. They well, get to come a long way, and then you're there out in the press box. Look, like imagine if you're yeah, in line. That's the thing is, I and you're behind. Uh, I really can't. Don't say, say any names. I don't say, say any names. names. Don't but say look, any like, names. Imagine you're behind some fellow from another national outlet who you've seen earlier sneeze. Um, oh yeah, this is yeah. Nothing to do with COVID. This could be August of 2017. It's just gross. It's just nasty. Yeah. I'm just not well, do that. It, it it doesn't seem like a halftime meal. It really doesn't. <laughs> right. Let me uh let me have eight shrimp with all this cocktail sauce. Let me let me then let me go back to the second half. And then also you're yeah. four you're a good four hours away from being back in your safe space. Um, after yeah. you eat those shrimp, you've got to finish the game. You got to do your Zoom calls. You got to write your story. You got to file your story. You got to wait for that to get edited. You got to pack your bag. Yeah. You got to walk back to your hotel, and then you're back in your safe space. That's a lot and, of time to kill with a lot of shrimp in your stomach. Yeah, and depend. Yeah, and and depending on how your gastrointestinal system works, um, that cocktail sauce is getting busy in those in those four hours. It's doing work because so, you're not eating anything else. You're just drinking coffee and eating shrimp. That's a uh, that's a uh, that's like combining batteries. That's an accident waiting to happen. What a note to end the podcast on. Um, Georgia is your national champion for 2021. Good game, good season. Glad we could uh, talk about it with you guys every week on the College Football Fix podcast. Subscribe to USA Today Sports to read everything that Paul and I do uh, throughout the offseason. And obviously in the next year, USA Today Sports Plus, a great subscription value. And thanks to our producer, Emily, for being with us all season long and cranking these episodes out really uh, awesome job by her. So again, thanks everybody involved. We'll be back uh, as soon as we can with the college football fix podcast, hang in there, subscribe, like, and we'll talk to you as soon as uh, we're available. The college football fix podcast. <laughs> with Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports.